But if you're able, one last time, I'm going to ask if you would to stand in honor of reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes and says this, But it's not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return to Sarah, shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. Father, as we look at your word this morning, Father, as we contemplate, no doubt, some difficult verses and extremely difficult words to think of the word hate. Our prayer, Father, is that you give us understanding, understanding of your mercy on a fallen sinner like I, mercy on fallen people who deserve your hatred and your wrath. Father, through the blood of Christ, you reached out through your purpose and extend eternal life to those who would believe. Grant us understanding this morning, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The first part of verse 6 that I just read, where Paul says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, it really carries a thought back to what we looked at a couple weeks ago in verses 1 through 5. In those verses, if you just want to glance at them, and we'll read a few in a moment, Paul reminds the Jews that they have been provided many gifts of God. Say amen if you've been provided gifts of God if you're here this morning. We have all been received those gifts of God, and yet we fail to recognize them. In verses 4 and 5, which again we talked a couple weeks ago, there is an impressive list of these items. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me for a moment. Paul says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The reality is this, despite all that they had been given, all these great spiritual benefits, all these great spiritual gifts and manifestations, it was never a guarantee of eternity. We talked about this for those of you that were here during our Sunday school hour, despite some technical difficulties. We had a chance to talk about the fact that 
Just being a Jew did not guarantee eternal life because many rejected the coming of a Messiah. Matthew 5, verse 18, Matthew writes of a, the same principle, the same concept when he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What Matthew is trying to say as a writer of the Gospels is that God has placed promises and he's given us assurances that salvation will come. He talks about his divine will. He talks about election. Three key words that has caused many debates amongst churches through the decades and centuries are the words election and predestination and, and foreknowledge. But the reality is these words are in our Bible. And God speaks of them with a purpose. And he, here Paul wants his Jewish readers in Rome to understand that salvation is a divine experience. It's not something you just name it and claim it. It always begins and ends with God. It's not about you. It's all about Him. In these verses, Paul seeks to explain the manner of God's divine sovereignty as it relates to our, to their salvation. Uh, he wants us to recognize that without Him, there, there is no salvation. So today I want to preach about a subject that I've entitled, Understanding God's Purpose. Understanding God's Purpose. And I'll deal with three points this morning, as is typical of we Southern Baptist preachers. Three points in a poem. I don't have a poem, but maybe I'll make one up as we get through. But the first point is this, Israel's rejection and God's divine selection. We'll talk a lot this morning about rejection. And these verses that we've read, Paul teaches us that the matter of who is chosen by God is a decision that rests with him, not with you. Many of you pray for loved ones. I've asked for prayer for my brother who's been hospitalized, who does not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is my will and my desire that he come to know Jesus. But I can't change that. It's God's decision. I don't have time to go into all the issues about that, but other than to say we we need to trust in his sovereignty and his purpose. So as we talk about divine selection, I want to first talk about a word about position, our position. We see this in verses 6 through 10 that we just read from Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. Are you catching that? Paul's saying, just because you've got the stamp, I'm a Jew, does not make you a true Jew. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, listen. <clears throat> and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, how can you not be a child if you're an offspring? But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh or the children of God, 
but the children of the promise as counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall give a son, and not only so, but also Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. The point Paul is making quite clear here is not all those of the nation of Israel mean that they are today getting ready for eternity. In other words, not all who died prior to the time of Christ, while Israel and the Jews were known as God's chosen people, some rejected that mindset, and though they had the title of Jew, they were not part of that chosen Jew. Now, whose decision was that? You might say, well, it was those who rejected. Well, yes, they rejected. We'll talk more about that. But ultimately, it was God's decision who he would choose. Because we could also talk about why did he choose Israel? And be very careful, because think of this logically. We often want to think God chose because he knew how they would respond. We call that foreknowledge, and the Bible does talk about foreknowledge. But I don't believe foreknowledge in the context of Scripture has to do with God's selection. It does mean that God knows what will take place, but think logically. If God knew, well, let's change it for a moment. If you, just for a moment, were God, and you knew how Israel would respond, think, be honest. You're God for a moment. You know how Israel's going to respond. You're going to choose them? Most of you are saying, no way. They rejected Messiah on the cross. Now let's take that a step further. Don't answer this one, please. You'll embarrass yourself, and I'll embarrass myself. If you were God, and you knew how you would be today, would you have chosen your spouse? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I mean, would you have chosen yourself? You are already eligible. Think logically. Would you make that choice based on how you know you are? It's not about family. Consider the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. Both were sons of Abraham, but only one was chosen by God to carry out his divine purpose. For all intents and purposes, family relationship is worthless in the matter of salvation. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter what church you are part of. That does not bring automatic salvation. We must be born again by faith through the blood of Jesus Christ. So position is simply this. Position that you have has nothing to do with salvation. It's all God's purpose. But second, a word about performance. Not just our position, but our performance. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born, and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of what election might continue, not because of works, but because of what? How good he thought we might be? Because of his foreknowledge? No, because of his what? Calling. Because he chose to do so. And I'm not suggesting 
any of this is easy to understand or comprehend or accept. But in reality, verse 11 tells us that God made his choice between Israel and Isaac before either of them were ever born. And his purpose was based on not how he knew they would respond, but on his calling. God in his divine wisdom decided which son would be blessed and which would not. Their works had nothing to do with it. And that's why Paul writes in another book, we didn't know this quite well in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, it is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that not, no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. In fact, talk about three points of a poem. That Greek word for workmanship is the Greek word poema. We do get our English word poem. For we are his poem, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto or for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Who prepared our good works? You worked at it? You studied for it? You read the Bible? No, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's purely a work of grace. Not only does he talk about position, he talks about performance. Third, he talks about purpose. Let's continue with verse 11 and on through to verse 13. So they were not yet born and had not done nothing either good or evil in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, because of his call. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. This no doubt includes one of the most debated, controversial, confusing verses in all the Bible, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the truth of these verses is that salvation is not based on your family. Salvation is not based on your fruits, although we are to bear fruit. Salvation is based solely on the will of the Father. Not fruits, not family, but the Father. While family and fruits, no doubt, work together in the arena of our salvation, it's the Father. That makes the difference. The whole and sole answer depends on God himself. Both these men were part of God's purpose and their descendants. But when he talks about Jacob, have I loved and Esau have I hated, as we look at the reality of the descendants on both sides, both showed open hatred towards God their creator. Yet still God had a purpose. In fact, many are bothered by these words. These words that Paul penned in Romans 9 really come from Malachi chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Malachi writes these words, the oracle of the word of God to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. What, is, what does God mean here? What is he saying? What does God 
hating Esau really mean? And we recognize that hatred has the idea of rejection. I don't have time to go into this. This verse in and of itself can become a theological series of sermons. And I'm going to sort of cut to the chase, but I believe in context, because he's talked about the Israelites and the Jews. I believe in context. He's not as much talking about a particular person, but their descendants. The descendants of. I believe that God's hatred is upon an idolatrous descendants of Esau who hated and opposed the people of Israel. And that continues to this day. The descendants of Esau being known as the Edomites and for understanding in our day and culture, that's the day of the area of modern day Iraq. The Edomites, or in that sense more specifically in our culture, the Muslims attacked against Jewish traditions and the teaching of Jesus, the Messiah. God very well could have said, Abraham have I loved, and every other man have I hated. He could have said, Isaac have I loved, and Ishmael I hated. But Romans 9 makes it clear that God's love for one and rejection for another was based solely on his decision. So the question is, what does that mean for us today? What application is that for us because a recognized still part of God's sovereign plan, as it was in the Old Testament, as you've heard Pastor Chris and myself both talk about, salvation has always been the same. In the Old Testament, it was trust and faith in the Messiah who would come. For us today, it's in a Messiah who did come. Faith never was ever works. But the question is, where does that faith come from? And I believe the scriptures here are teaching us that that faith, faith is initiated by God himself. That we in our own flesh cannot constitute that element of faith without the Father. Because it's not our family, it's not our fruits, it's the Father. So we talked about divine selection. Second part, I want to talk about Israel's rejection, and not only God's divine selection, but God's divine sovereignty. When you truly grasp the implications of what Paul is talking about, I think you begin to sort of step off the stage and into deep waters. When I came out of the house a couple of days back, I guess it was a week ago now, and went along to the side of our SUV to get into the SUV to drive off to work, I, I stepped into what I thought was supposed to be three inches of snow and found it to be nine inches down where we are. Uh, and you all recognize more snow, I think, up here as well, but this is stepping into this deep water when you get into this theological discussion. <coughs> the whole issue of salvation and God's selection of some people and not others is definitely bothersome to many. Not an easy thing to comprehend. Romans 9, 14, we read this in part, but Paul writes, as, he's, as we've concluded with verse 13, the last words we read, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, verse 14, he then says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice 
on God's part? I think logically. Your child says, I don't like broccoli. And you say almost automatically, in fact, I heard this at our house, Mary staying with us because they lost power in West Virginia with her two younger ones. And she was asking William if he liked something. She said, have you ever tried it? And he said, no. You've done that. Don't say you don't like something. You didn't even try it. It's your life commercial. Hey, Mikey, he likes it. Well, the reality is here is we don't understand and comprehend why does God love one and hate or reject the other? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The ESV, as we just read, says, by no means. I really like how the King James Version reads on this very same verse. What shall we say then? Is there any, is there any unrighteousness with God? God forbid. You may not know, I might not know, in fact, I don't know, and I can't comprehend why God would say, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Does that sound unjust? Be honest. Does it sound unjust? Sure it does. Is God unjust, based on what Paul says in verse 14? By no means. God forbid. The Greek phrase is, make an earth that never can ever happen. God's never been unjust. So you explain it to me. I don't even know who's watching. I might have family members watching. But as I've shared with you, to the best of my knowledge, my brother has not made a personal decision for Jesus Christ. Well, I should rephrase that. He did at one point in time, but there was never proof to when we were broke, put into a foster home. He would soon leave. And I would oftentimes, as a young child, would ask God, why me and not him? And that could change today, tomorrow, I don't know. But I don't have the answer. I don't. And sure, it might seem unjust, but God forbid, one of the biggest struggles that I often have to deal with as a pastor, as I teach on this subject, because Romans is not easy, many preachers would that skim over it or not even deal with it. But this book does use these words, election, predestination, foreknowledge. And you can sit here all day long and say, I don't believe in predestination. You know what? doesn't matter. The Bible teaches it. Now, we may differ on how, what we think it means, but you really can't say it. If you say you don't believe it, then you don't believe God's word. What you're really saying is, I don't believe it means what Pastor Michael means. And that's okay. We're going to have differences of opinion. But the Bible teaches election. The Bible teaches uh, the sovereignty of God, predestination, or knowledge. It's clear in Scripture. You might ask, is, isn't God unfair to choose some and reject others before they're born? Before the foundation of the earth? You, you rest at that point. But as we deal with this issue, I want to first talk about God's right. Verses 15 through 18, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. <clears throat> so then it depends not on human will 
or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, and I will show you my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul brings us all the way back to Exodus 33, where we have the story of Moses with Mount Sinai and the law. Moses calls for those who are on the Lord's side to join him. The Levites did so. And these faithful men are commanded to slay the rebels that were there, and some 3,000 were killed. Rightly, there were some uh, wicked Israelites that should have also been killed, but God in his sovereignty only allowed 3,000 to be killed. He selected some and rejected others. Justice demanded that there be death. We see the same thing with Pharaoh. We, we've all heard the story about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's not an easy principle or concept or doctrine to comprehend, but God made that decision because it is his right. It makes this clear also in Romans 9, verses 16 through 18, so then it depends not on human will, you know, a lot about free will. Listen to these words. And I believe in free will. But I believe it has nothing to do with salvation. But listen to this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Who has mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, and I have shown my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. These verses tell us that it's not about our personal position, it's not our personal performance, it's not even about one's pursuit of God, but it's all based on God's pursuit of us. Now you sit there and you may ask this question, but what if a person wants to be saved? Does that mean that he cannot be saved unless he's been chosen by God? Good question. What if, what if John Doe wants to be saved? Can he be saved if he's not chosen by God? Well, here's my response to that. If that person truly wants to be saved, I believe they will be saved. You know why I believe they'll be saved? Because God already made that decision when. You know the answer. When did he make that decision? Before the foundation of the world. Now, here's the reality. Do you know who those people are? Because I know there's a common theme out there that is often spoken of, of, of those who may take such a hard line. Why evangelize? Why Russo? Why proclaim the truth? Here's why. You don't know who God has selected. You have no idea. But let me tell you something. If God has desired for me to share the gospel, Brian, I believe you've told me you've been a believer some four plus years, or four years. God wanted me to share the gospel with Brian, and I failed to do so. God had purpose, Michael, and he laid on my heart, and I kept denying, I kept refusing. When did God put Brian's name in the book of life? When? The beginning, before the foundation of the earth. So I don't share the gospel, can Brian get saved? Yes, why? Because Chris said, all right, if Michael's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. God already made the decision. I now miss out on the blessing, he gets it. But it doesn't change God's calling. 
So our reason for sharing the gospel is we don't know who God called. I don't have the answers to that. Neither do you. So we still proclaim the good news. Verse 16 again. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who had mercy. Here's the reality. I shared this sort of in part for the Sunday school. You have to ask yourself, what does a brand new born baby, let's take a baby being born right now, because there's 8 billion people in the world, but somewhere in the world a baby's being born, has just come out of the womb. What does that baby deserve? Hell. Why? Because they did anything right or wrong? No, because we live in a sin-cursed world. That's, that's a tough issue to comprehend. I'm not saying they'll go to hell. I'm saying that's what they deserve. That's what we deserve. But by the grace of God. God's right. Second, God's reason. We see this in verses 19 through 24. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer that to God? Will what is right Moses say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desired to show his wrath and to make known his power? He's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Paul anticipates another objection that might be made by his readers as he's writing this letter. If salvation is the sole and entire work of God, then what right does the maker, or the one made, I should say, what right does the one being made have to say to the maker, you messed up? You follow the analogy? There's the potter and the clay. What right does the clay have to say to the potter, you messed up? Because God has his reasoning, his reality. God does not answer to Pastor Michael Luteau. God does not answer to Pastor Chris Theobald. God doesn't answer to you. He owes nothing, listen, he owes nothing but damnation. But praise be to God for his grace and mercy. Romans 9.22, we've read it. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, listen to the phrase, prepared for destruction. That word prepared written in the original Greek context means that decision was made before it was actually prepared. That was the purpose of it. Do you recognize that as we look at those verses that God gets just as much glory, verses 22 and 23, God gets as much glory from displaying his wrath, verse 22, as he does in demonstrating his grace in verse 23. You follow that? I mean, think about that. God gets as much glory from displaying wrath 
as he does with demonstrating grace. I can't do that. Does that sound like a contradiction? Humanly speaking, it is. But God must be a just God. And then third, not only God's right, God's reason, God's remnant, verses 25 through 29. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Paul here is quoting Isaiah and Hosea, so we've seen a reference to Malachi, Hosea, and Isaiah, to remind us that if it were not for the pure and the simple grace of God, none of us would be saved. That's what salvation is, is the pure, simple grace of God. And as a reminder, not all those born into the family of Adam or Abraham are guaranteed salvation because the deserving element for all is again back to hell it's the grace of God that intervenes on our behalf so we've seen divine selection we've seen divine sovereignty I want to close with this third issue of Israel's rejection and God's divine salvation the crux of the matter. First, we see his righteousness in Romans 9, verses 30 and 31. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. For that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching out that law. These verses tell us clearly that Righteousness is given, imputed righteousness, as you've heard both of us refer to often, is given to those who believe the gospel, who trust in that Messiah. And the Messiah's righteousness is, is imputed or placed upon us. The question becomes, how is it possible that Gentiles who knew not God and rejected his salvation while Jews who knew his word missed him in his salvation. Remember, the Jews were God's chosen people. How did some miss out? And again, it's back to God's divine sovereignty. God spoke to hearts, yes, in the Old Testament. It was to his elect people, the Israelites. That's why, again, not enough time to go into that. There was a whole process, if you were a Gentile, of becoming a Jew. Because you, why, did, why did any Gentile ever want to become a Jew? The reality is really for one purpose. They heard of that God who saved the Israelites from so many things. And they began to say, I want to follow 
that God, and so they would go through the process of conversion to Judaism and all that it entailed, not so that they could have stamped Jew as much as they could have stamped faith in a coming Messiah. Because that God who parted the Red Sea and protected those people can protect me. That's why one would convert to Judaism. And it's the same reason that a Jew today who has rejected Christ as Messiah is lost unless they do the same thing. Recognize Jesus, the Messiah. The righteousness of God. But then we see his reason in verses 32 and 33. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Why did they not believe? Why did these Jews who had all the answers, allegedly, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believed in him will not be put to shame. Who was that stumbling block? Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. He became a stumbling block to the Jews because they refused to accept his ways. Salvation can only come in a response to the call from God and a heeding to that call. You see, his righteousness, his reason, and third, the greatest reward that one might ever see. We see that in verse 33. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believed in him will not be put to shame. Believers are promised that whoever comes to Christ in faith will never be ashamed, that is, of the gospel. That we, when we arrive and stand before the throne, whether it be in paradise or the ultimate dwelling place of heaven, will not be turned away and sent to hell, will not face that of shame. We will not be offended by the stumbling block because we've been called by God. We will not be disappointed. Now let me close by saying this. There's no doubt in my mind there are some things that I shared this morning that may not sit well with you on the subject of election or predestination or foreknowledge. Let's set as much of that aside as we can. Because I, I don't have all the answers. And there are differing opinions as to how we break this down. The reality is this. Salvation, regardless of how you interpret different words, I know we all agree with this. Salvation is of God. Amen? Salvation is of God. And yes, whosoever will can drink of the living water. And if God is pulling at your heart today, and you're sitting there wondering, well, Pastor Michael, with all that you said, how, how do I know if I'm one of those elect of God? Really, only God knows, and if he's tugging at your heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, let, let me give you a hint. <coughs> Sounds like you're one of his chosen ones. 
Because if you're not, you wouldn't have that desire. You know people. And as you've talked to them, there seems to be no desire in their heart whatsoever for things of God. So if you're here this morning, and you have never trusted in the Messiah, but you keep having that tug in your heart, I'm going to urge you as we get ready to sing this song of invitation to come to the altar, share with Pastor Chris myself, that we might be able to introduce you to the Messiah that has called you. While this may be confusing to grasp, the bottom line is truly this. And I've always said this and always will. If you want to be saved today, the Savior is waiting for you to enter in. I'm going to ask for Caleb and the praise team to come up and begin to prepare our hearts for a time of altar call. Pastor Chris will join me in a moment. And again, while this may come across at times somewhat confusing, here's the reality is God's desire always has been for mankind to be in a right relationship with him. Starting in the Garden of Eden. Unfortunately, Due to a rebellious angel that would fall, and as a serpent, tempt and lie to even Adam, sin entered our sin cursed world. And as a result, we all deserve hell. For whatever reason, God reached out and placed his calling on some of us here today. I'd be naive to believe that it's everyone. One thing I do believe is God has laid on your heart to be here this morning for some reason. And if you've never expressed a desire to be part of the kingdom of God, I would invite you to do so this morning. If you have that tug, I would ask you to come forward. And if these are somewhat confusing issues, then ask. We may not have all the answers, but we know where you can find them. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. As we prepare for this time of invitation, we ask, God, for your mercy to be extended to one here who might not have made a personal decision to trust Christ with you. Draw them, Father, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Brother, maybe there's one here today that, as a believer, is becoming more and more knowledgeable they're deserving hell, but yet, Father, how you've reached out and touched their life, and while their works don't save them, Father, they've recognized that they have come short of showing their appreciation for you, and they want to rededicate themselves, Father, why might you work that in their life, and maybe there's someone here that needs to join this church, maybe make a decision of baptism to follow you, Lord, and to make that decision, Father, would you lead that way?